Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Rex Young to the show. Dr. Young is the president and owner of a private neuropsychology practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico called Brain and Behavioral Associates. Although he spent over 14 years in the academic field as an assistant research professor and assistant professor at the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center, his real passion is neuropsychology. Today, we will learn more about his academic and professional journey to show that you don't have to follow the typical academic path to be successful and enjoy your career. Dr. Young, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk a little bit more about your journey, but first off, what sparked your interest in psychology in the first place? It's kind of a long and uh, fraught story. I, I <laughs> my undergraduate degrees in finance, so I had only had one uh, intro to psych uh, class uh, as an undergraduate, and um, really that wasn't my path. I graduated with a degree in business, was out in the business world uh, working for several years, um, and started volunteering for Special Olympics and really became fascinated and interested in how the brain works and works less well uh, in all of its manifestations uh, in uh, intellectual disability, autism, cerebral palsy, seizures, epilepsy, and really made a decision at that time that I wanted to do uh, work in that area. And um, Although it was difficult, I was in my late 20s at the time, uh, I wanted to kind of do a redo or reset and pursue work in that area and explore what type of work was available in that area. And psychology in general uh, was one of the paths. And then I, as I discovered later, neuropsychology was the particular path that would get me to where I wanted to be. And you already mentioned this, uh, you went to the University of Colorado Boulder for your bachelor's degree, and it was in finance. And so throughout that undergraduate career, uh, it sounds like you were turned on with this, the study of the brain. And, and as you mentioned, everything that goes with that, you decided to attend graduate school at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Um, there are a handful of universities, and I'm going to share my screen real quick here. Uh, just for those who are tuning in and can see the screen, I'll share my screen. And, and here's your main uh, website. And um, what I wanted to do was move over here. And there are, you know, as I mentioned, there are a lot of different masters and doctoral programs in New Mexico. So tell us why you decided on the University of New Mexico versus some of these other ones or going outside of New Mexico as well. Well, my, I, I was in Baltimore at the time. I, I grew up in Boulder, and so Boulder was my hometown. I went to University of Colorado in Boulder as an undergraduate, uh, as, as we discussed, and I was in Baltimore um, doing work uh, at that time. And my two main criteria for graduate school was uh, there had to be mountains in it, there had to be snow. And uh, so I wanted to get back west. I really 
uh, missed uh, the western part of the, the country. And so I applied uh, all up and down uh, the mountain range, the Rocky Mountain range from Montana uh, down to New Mexico, places in Arizona, Utah, uh, Wyoming, uh, Colorado. And um, <clears throat> again, it was pretty naive criteria, but I, I wanted to uh, get back west if I was going to spend, you know, upwards of seven, eight, nine years uh, in a place. I wanted it to be uh, someplace that I really liked, someplace that I enjoyed, someplace that I could have an enjoyable life outside of school um, where I could hike and, and uh, bike and uh, be outdoors as well. So why UNM? They were the only one that accepted me. <laughs> so, which is a customary uh, story uh, in uh, this journey is that you go where where uh, the door opens, and uh, you know I applied to I don't know ten or twelve uh, graduate schools, and I was a pretty unconventional student, and um, and UNM uh, accepted me, so that's where I went. Well, there you go. Um... I do have to kind of ask a follow-up question here. When you were applying to graduate school, were you uh, applying to both master's and doctorate programs or only doctorate programs? Only doctorate programs. I was in a ma uh, master's clinical psychology program in Baltimore, actually. So I was coming um, from a master's program um, at Loyola College in Baltimore, Maryland. And I had started there in a clinical psychology program to kind of make that that strange transition uh, and at least get started on the path so that I at least look plausible as a as a as an applicant and so I uh, had started uh, in a master's program and was just applying to PhD programs at that point I had not finished my master's degree uh, but had uh, progressed uh, probably a year uh, a little over a year um, in that program before I then was accepted and um, started at the PhD level. So okay. I was able to transfer many of those classes from that master's program to my PhD uh, studies. Okay. And that leads to my next question, because I did see that you received your master's and your doctorate in clinical psychology with an emphasis, I believe, on clinical neuropsychology. Um, how it sounds like based on your um, previous description, you kind of knew early on that you were very interested in neuropsychology. And so that was, even though you wanted to bike and hike, you, you still had that in the back of your mind. You wanted to have that there at the uh, graduate program as well. I did. Yeah. I knew, and, and all of the programs that I applied to had neuropsychology emphasis. Um, when I was in Baltimore, I did many things. I worked at, uh, National Institute of Aging in a research laboratory of personality and cognition. I volunteered at Shock Trauma um, uh, Hospital, um, who took me on uh, as, uh, as a neuropsychology technician to uh, do testing. I also volunteered at Johns Hopkins, which was there in their neurosurgery, pediatric neurosurgery. So I was really able to see you know, medical training, uh, neuropsychological uh, uh, aspects of the field, uh, research aspects of the field and and get a really good look uh, at what they entailed and uh, what I liked and what I didn't like about each. So I was able to make a rational decision when I was applying to graduate school that that it wasn't medical school that I wanted. It wasn't um, uh, clinical psychology per se, but it was the specialization 
of neuropsychology that was uh, the best fit for me. I dug deep and I uh, uncovered a lot of rocks and I found that your advisor, I believe, was Ronald Yeo. Yeah. Uh, and your dissertation was biochemical markers of intelligence and cognition in normal human brain. I also noticed that you and your colleagues have a patent, patent number 6708053. I don't know if you have that memorized, but there no. it is. Bi biochemical <laughs> markers of brain function. Did this patent come from your work that you did on your dissertation? It did. Um, it, uh, it came, uh, we, it was back in the, in the dark ages of uh, MRI uh, imaging, and we were doing a technique called magnetic resonance spectroscopy, which allows us to look at brain biochemistry. And so MRI technology, you get static images um, that, you know, the, in the old uh, movies, medical movies and TV shows, you can see them putting up on the white boards and looking at individual images. And that was kind of the state of the art in the early 90s. Uh, but we were able to look at brain biochemistry with same MRI technology and, and use that to map brain function and brain dysfunction. And so I, uh, we were looking at traumatic brain injury and a disease called lupus, um, multiple sclerosis, different diseases, and finding correlates with neuropsychological functioning. And I came up with the harebrained idea, why don't we look at normal brain functioning and see if these capacities of cognitive functioning are correlated with these uh, chemicals that we can measure in, in neurons of the brain. And my advisor um, let me do that after some haranguing and then uh, turned out well, uh, published, and then um, actually was intriguing that we might be able to, because it was correlated with intelligence, that you might be able to measure someone's intelligence with a simple brain scan um, instead of uh, an IQ test that you could measure the, the content of their brain uh, and uh, have a objective measure of their intellectual functioning that way. So that's why we, or my advisor uh, pushed to patent that because you could easily uh, uh, measure someone's IQ with a brain scan. What was the correlation, if you don't uh, mind me asking, how, uh, how strong was that correlation? It was only 0.3, which is why we don't get our IQ measured with brain scans <laughs> to this day. Uh, it's not a very viable, uh, strong correlation. So like with most social sciences, uh, correlations, uh, you know, is only around 0.3. Um, so it's not uh, a strong enough correlation to make it uh, particularly viable. Others have tried and have patented different MRI techniques to also try to measure intelligence with uh, MRI technology. And I think they've gotten as high as 0.5, uh, perhaps, but uh, you need to get much, much higher um, uh, correlations uh, in order to be able to make it a viable uh, technique. And, and they may get there someday, but uh, um, it's certainly not. Uh, plausible to do that uh, at this point. With that being said, though, I would argue that that's just another measure that you could incorporate if you wanted to have an all-encompassing view of somebody's intelligence. Absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, it's another uh, measure of brain structure, perhaps brain function, brain biochemistry that gives you a marker that could be important in terms of cognitive capacity, memory capacity, attention, um, things of that nature uh, that that could help uh, in um, understanding someone's uh, cognitive capacity, which is important to 
educators, uh, employers. Um, um, it's important to neuropsychologists to understand cognitive uh, capacity, cognitive functioning, and dysfunctioning, and and certainly that would be uh, a measure that that could be um, uh, a tool in the toolbox uh, down the road. Definitely, I would also see that it's valuable, especially now with the uh, aging population and uh, seeing how their brains change going into their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, Alzheimer's. Obviously, I read a lot of your work on uh, uh, brain injury uh, and, and utilizing uh, your skills and diagnoses to uh, help those who are recovering from uh, significant brain injuries as well. Let me go back to your graduate school and, and just ask you, what were some of the fondest memories uh, that you remember uh, attending graduate school? Well, really working in the lab was uh, was really wonderful. Working with um, another graduate uh, student, a fellow of mine, Seth Friedman, uh, who's another psychologist, uh, experimental psychologist, but uh, uh, he and I did uh, studies in traumatic brain injury and, and um, uh, neuroimaging um, and really fond memories of, of uh, working with, with him and being able to to run these massive, expensive machines and uh, uh, being able to work with really hurt uh, patient populations and treat them with dignity and respect and and uh, humor uh, and be able to uh, get important data about their recovery over time, um, it was really incredible that we, you know, were able to do such high-level research in in graduate school at the time. It's kind of astounding when most psychology students, you know, um, make a survey or uh, an instrument that they run past uh, other college students, undergraduates, perhaps, and that's kind of what most people do uh, in their graduate work is is kind of survey-based. But we were able to to really do, as I look back. Um, really high level work that uh, that I didn't know how spoiled I was at the time, but I was I was quite uh, in a privileged and spoiled spot uh, uh, at that at that time and I thought everyone was able to do that and, and really it was a pretty uh, rarefied uh, point to, to be in that particular time. It's always interesting talking to my guests when they recall because all we're doing is kind of recalling your journey. And they sometimes realize how good they had it and how good life was back then. And um, going along the same lines, a lot of our um, uh, audience members ask, you know, um, how did you go about the process of searching for graduate schools and programs? And so I'll kind of change that a little bit and say, in hindsight, would you do anything different in terms of the process related to searching for graduate schools and programs? And if so, We'll go ahead and explain. No, I mean it, it's kind of a it's kind of a crapshoot, and you don't know how things are going to work out. And and things you know worked out great here. And I've uh, I was incredibly lucky to fall in with a great advisor, Ron Yo, who you mentioned. Um, he gave me incredible leeway and freedom and and wonderful guidance um, along the way. Um, to uh, to explore the world of psychology, intelligence, neuroimaging, 
Um, and then uh, I came to love New Mexico and and this place and and make it my new home for what twenty five, six, seven years now. Um, so I I really would not uh, change anything because um, I love this place and uh, the trajectory of my career has been very gratifying. And if I change anything, I feel like I'd screw it all up. I feel like it's just uh, incredibly lucky that I got to do all the things that I got to do. I feel um, that if I kind of upset the apple cart that I would end up in a profoundly different place. So what advice would you offer those seeking a graduate degree in psychology? Um, I think, you know, pick a place that um, you, you, you believe that you will be happy and that you believe provides opportunity, um, that it isn't all going to be spelled out for you. If, if there are many paths uh, open to you, that's probably uh, the, the best place for you to go. And uh, if you can find a place that, that provides opportunity for you to be entrepreneurial in your spirit, um, I think that is probably um, gives you the best opportunity to succeed. Um, if you go someplace that they have uh, the perfect machine to fit you as a cog into, um, that is is uh, that can be right for some people, but for smart people who are going into psychology, that's often the the wrong the wrong fit. And a lot of people, when they, uh, I'm interested in psychology, they think, and then they don't know which field or area of psychology. And you knew from the sounds of it from the get-go, neuropsychology is what I wanted. Any advice to those who are still wondering, I know I'm interested in psychology, but I'm not sure what field. How do they get to know that? And any advice on how they could find their field faster? Well, I didn't know. Um, I, and, and so I um, showed up at places and, and volunteered my services um, and um, said I'd like to, you know, help out and um, volunteer and um, provide um, my work. And in exchange, you can teach me what it is about this uh, work that you do. And um, it sounds like I am a trust fund baby, but I wasn't. I, uh, I uh, moved furniture um, in both Colorado uh, to put myself through school and in Baltimore to uh, provide myself with food and lodging. But uh, um, some of these jobs turned into uh, working jobs when they saw that you were useful. I'd start out as volunteer and be able to move less furniture uh, and do more work, uh, the shock trauma job where I was uh, a, a neuropsych technician uh, that turned into a paid position. Uh, the Johns Hopkins was always a volunteer job uh, in neurosurgery uh, at, um, uh, at uh, National Institute of Aging that turned into a paid position. Uh, eventually I could uh, stop uh, moving furniture and had enough money to then start uh, graduate school uh, in a master's program in clinical psychology, um, but it, it, it took some time to try these things out, to show up, 
to do good work, uh, to see what I liked and what I didn't like, uh, and then to take the next step in a, in a rational way. Um, because I didn't want to make the same mistake of going through a whole degree process and, and not being happy with, with what I was doing on the, on the other end of it, like I'd done with my un undergraduate degree. You kept very busy because I noticed that you did your internship at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, in the neurosurgery department and the behavioral medicine department. Tell us a little bit more about that experience and how you found that internship. Well, my, my advisors all said that I needed to get out of uh, New Mexico to do my internship. That was their advice is go someplace other than here. There's not enough opportunity uh, to get, you know, the type of experience that, that you need to go to the next level. And so I looked around and, and um, the best research was being done at Baylor College of Medicine. And so I, I applied a number of places again. Um, they accepted me there at, at Baylor and it was a good fit. I really wanted to get into neurosurgical uh, practice um, and uh, uh, they provided the opportunity to work side by side with neurologists and neurosurgeons and it, including in the neurosurgical suite uh, to do uh, what's called awake craniotomies to test patients while they're undergoing uh, neurosurgery um, to determine if you're cutting a part of the brain that is uh, important to ongoing cognitive function. So it really provided a, a unique um, experience that I never could have gotten here uh, in New Mexico. It was painful because I had a family here in New Mexico. I was flying back and forth weekly um, between uh, Albuquerque and, and Houston Hobby Airport. Uh, I made 50 round trip flights um, during that during that year back and forth so I could spend the week in Houston and spend the weekends uh, here in here in Albuquerque. So it was quite onerous. Thankfully, this is before 9-11. So flying was a lot easier back then. Uh, but uh, um, it was it was uh, 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 important, uh, hard, expensive uh, year, but I got the experience that I needed. They offered me a postdoc, but my God, Houston is so hot and humid. I love the people, but uh, Houston was just unbearable. So I, I came back to, uh, to Albuquerque to, um, to work after that. Yeah, and I'll talk about the postdoc in a second, but you mentioned something that I have to follow up on. You said that you're doing a wake, what was it called? Craniotomy, yeah. Craniotomy. And then you mentioned to determine whether or not people were taking out an important part of your brain. Don't get me wrong. I think all parts of my brain are important. <laughs> and you're right. <laughs> but if a tumor is in there, for example, right. uh, they need to get that out and they need to get it out uh, in such a way that they don't hurt something that you're using uh, for right. speech. For example, if the tumor is near a speech area of your brain or for motor functioning, uh, if it's near uh, the motor strip. So um, if, if, uh, if you're close to uh, regions, what are called eloquent regions of your brain, then they pull neuropsychologists in to, to test you, keep you talking and keep you uh, chattering away and, and doing language testing while the neurosurgeons go right up to the edge of that tumor bed and right up to um, the edge of the cliff before getting into areas that would uh, cause you cause you harm for your speech, for example. So um, I did a lot of that 
then because I had that experience at Baylor, I was able to do several years of that here in New Mexico. We brought a, a weight craniotomy program, uh, started that here in the neurosurgery department uh, here in uh, Albuquerque, and I uh, worked with a, a wonderful doctor, uh, Dr. Chohan, um, for many years, uh, did over 150 uh, awake craniotomy surgeries here uh, in Albuquerque. So we were able to translate that experience on internship into something that we were able to grow here in Albuquerque. I, I have to say this, even though it's getting off topic for a second, every time I hear awake craniotomy, I think of Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, and, and I, <laughs> don't I, think I, of that. Yeah. <laughs> So it's probably different than that, but it is, uh, it is definitely interesting. You mentioned that you came back to the University of New Mexico for your postdoctoral fellowship. And I think that was within the Department of the Psychiatry Research. Um, yeah. Is doing the postdoctoral fellowship recommended or expected nowadays? Or tell me how you found this back then, maybe it was icing on the cake, but now I get the sense that it's almost uh, expected nowadays. Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. It, it was, it was kind of like additional training that you could do. It was uh, recommended, uh, but not required. Now it's almost uh, required mm -hmm. uh, uh, to do a postdoctoral fellowship. Um, so I hadn't had much psychiatry training uh, at that time. So coming back and doing a couple years of psychiatry training with uh, patients uh, with schizophrenia, um, predominantly bipolar disease, but schizophrenia was the predominant population where I could work very intensively with psychiatrists um, in that uh, group. So um, kind of finishing off uh, my rotations with neurology, neurosurgery, psychiatry, um, some of the major uh, disciplines that work with patients and, and neuropsychologists. Um, and I was able to do that for a couple of years before um, uh, getting my first real job uh, in neurology uh, at the University of New Mexico. But uh, uh, to answer your question now, uh, people are becoming board certified. I'm a little too old to get... Uh, go through that hassle, I guess, uh, of board certification, but to become board certified, I'm eligible to become board certified, but to become board certified, you have to have an internship, uh, APA uh, internship and a fellowship and go through all of these uh, phases to become board certified in neuropsychology. That has to be done. Um, so um, it is more of a have to now than a, than a want to or might do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You then worked as assistant research professor for a couple of years within the Department of Neurology at UNM Health Services Center, then worked as a research assistant at the Mental Illness and Neuroscience Discovery, which is the MIND Institute for a few years before returning to UNM as an assistant professor for, I think, 12 more years. A couple of questions for you regarding this. How did you find the opportunity at UNM uh, and did you apply to other universities and, and why UNM? I didn't. I mean, I'm kind of one of those people that that um, that uh, didn't look very far for uh, opportunities. And again, I had a family here, and so uh, neurology. Uh, you know, I'm I'm 
Albuquerque is a small place and UNM is, is even smaller and the hospital is very small. So running into the uh, doctors and neurologies interested in hiring a, a neuropsychologist. And, and so um, I went there for my first job and did that for a couple of years. <clears throat> I had very good experience working with the neurologists um, very uh, intensely. Um, got to learn a lot about uh, epilepsy and multiple sclerosis and movement disorders, Parkinson's disease and uh, other um, diseases that neurologists uh, work with most uh, intensely. So um, that was a great experience. And then uh, with the Mind Institute uh, Research Network, uh, uh, had an opportunity to uh, pursue grant funding uh, with them. They were looking for researchers to um, populate a, a center grant, uh, young researchers that, that would um, be uh, funded to do research in uh, psychiatry for that uh, 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 mental illness. Uh, schizophrenia was the uh, disease that we were looking at and it was a center grant uh, for several years uh, allowing us to um, do neuroimaging research in schizophrenia um, funded by the National Institutes uh, of Health. And so I uh, went over there to, to do that research uh, for several years until I got my own independent funding and was able to um, work there uh, with my independent funding for a few more years and then transition back to neurosurgery. So I'm going to share my screen again, and now you are the president and owner of a private, as I mentioned earlier, private neuropsychology practice called Brain and Behavioral Associates. Before I go there, though, I, I loved your website here, just rexyoung.com. Your homepage is fascinating to me because uh, it has uh, some links to your research, some recently published material, and then in the, note, in the news, video, talk, and book, recommended sites. And then if you wanted to learn more about you, you have an about page and a press page and a video page as well. But let's go to this uh, Brain and Behavioral Associates uh, website. Tell me a little bit more about this practice, when you, it was created, why you created it. How is it different? And that's kind of the key question. How is it different uh, than other typical practices? So I created it, or I started it in 2011, so many years ago now, um, I started this practice, and because I worked at the hospital um, and worked with medical doctors, it, it, it became evident that while you can have tenure um, in medical schools, they can always zero out your contract. It's not like tenure at uh, in the Department of Psychology, where you have a a guaranteed contract for life. They can always zero out your contract. And so because I'm a clinician, um, you know, the patients are kind of my tenure. There will always be patients that, that, that need to be evaluated. So I always saw that as, as my tenure package, if you will, that I'll always be able to, to work by seeing patients. So I started when it became evident to me that, that I was not going to pursue a tenure track position uh, I'd always be an untenured uh, assistant professor in the medical school. Um, then I started this practice and um, saw some patients uh, on the side uh, to start with, did some legal work. Um, then it slowly uh, evolved over time. 
And then when I left the university um, completely uh, just last year, um, then I have this um, private practice completely built up uh, in that uh, interval of time uh, to where now I have um, other practitioners that work with me, um, uh, psychometricians that work for me, students that run through, I have a fellow uh, that works here. Um, so I have a, a fully functioning private practice that um, uh, I can work for as long as I want. Um, my plan is to retire in a few years and sell it to um, a, um, well, my office manager who I've been working with for some 20 years and then come back as a contractor and, and work for her uh, as, as, uh, as fits my uh, needs and moods, um, which I can do as a neuropsychologist, I can schedule patients. Um, several months at a time and then take several months off if, if that um, suits me because I um, hope to travel more in the future. So uh, this private practice is probably a lot like uh, most uh, psychology private practices. Uh, I own this uh, house that uh, we practice in. It has three testing rooms and um, uh, we employ six people and uh, we have four neuropsychologists uh, working here um, part-time. Uh, I'm full-time, we have a full-time fellow. So it's a pretty busy um, psychology, neuropsychology practice uh, in, in Albuquerque. It's one of the uh, larger neuropsychology practices here in Albuquerque now. And uh, I should emphasize or share the address, 1300 Central Avenue, Southwest, Albuquerque, New Mexico, 87102. Uh, has a good website on there. It talks about the providers, the services, and then it has a contact page. So if you're interested, uh, obviously uh, go to brainandbehavioral.com and then uh, you can find out a little bit more about this practice. And for those who have watched uh, Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, we're located right next to the doghouse, which is a very uh, interesting <laughs> uh, point uh, uh, that helps our patients uh, locate us. It's a it's a it's a major uh, uh, scene uh, backdrop in in those two shows. <laughs> and I'm sharing my screen again. I was going to share this, but you brought it up and prompted me to bring it up. So yeah, here's here's your location. And there's the doghouse driving right, right there. next door. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it really helps people find us, but we're, we're close to downtown. So uh, it's, it's a nice location. It's nice to be in an old bungalow style house, uh, which I love. And um, um, it's a nice, it's a nice location. It's nice for our patients. On your about page, uh, you um, state that you study both brain disease and what the brain does well a field of research known as positive neuroscience. Tell us a little bit more about positive neuroscience. Well, the positive part is what the brain does well. And, and most, um, most neuroscience researchers uh, who get funded by NIH, for example, are studying brain disease, uh, traumatic brain injuries, schizophrenia, uh, and the like. But um, I think I've kind of fashioned a career I have studied and published on traumatic brain injury, schizophrenia, lupus, uh, things like that. But I fashioned a career on the positive aspects of 
uh, brain capacity, intelligence, personality, creativity. And I think that positive neuroscience is um, like positive psychology, looking at positive psychological attributes, uh, unlike or in contrast to depression, anxiety, um, things like gratitude, um, that our positive attributes uh, are, are important for us to, uh, to look at as well. So positive neuroscience is, is something that I've carved out a career in and published extensively uh, on. So I, I uh, feel very fortunate to have um, had no competition or very little competition to start with uh, in that field, but now it's, it's really um, uh, grown the studies of uh, intelligence, uh, neuroscience of intelligence and creativity has really grown uh, and dozens and dozens of uh, research labs are, are looking at these uh, uh, capacities of the brain in earnest. And now I can um, rest easy that uh, um, some real headway can be gained uh, uh, in spite of our um, low expectations when we first started. <laughs> now, for those listeners or uh, video audience members who are watching the video, if you are interested more on intelligence research, I want to share my screen again, because I noticed that you were past president and current treasurer of the International Society for Intelligence Research, or I don't know if, if I'm going to say this right, ISAR or ISAR? Just ISIR, yeah. ISIR. So tell yeah. us a little bit more about this uh, society and, and how you found it. It's a small society that started, I think, at, at, at around the turn of the century, Yep. Um, and it's it's a society devoted to um, researchers interested in the study of intelligence. So mostly it's made up of um, uh, uh, experimental psychologists who look at psychometric studies of intelligence. Um, but uh, you have geneticists, you have um, uh, there's Rosalind, our current president, who is interested in animal intelligence. Uh, you have people like myself who are interested in uh, neuroimaging. Uh, Kirsten Hilger is doing fantastic work in network studies, uh, brain uh, imaging and intelligence. Um, so you have a really diverse array of individuals uh, studying uh, intelligence from all different aspects. So it's a very small society. Uh, maybe 100 people come to our meeting, but it's a very... Um, collegial and uh, vibrant group of individuals uh, looking at this important human capacity. Well, again, I wanted to share that because what's interesting is those who are interested in intelligence research may not know where to go, where to start, uh, what are some support groups that are out there that are uh, sharing that same passion um, for, um, for that. So let me uh, stop share here and, and continue on because what we have next is um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on our podcast is that you have a pretty unconventional career path. I mean, you have the academic part, but you also stepped away from it for a few years and then went back to it. And you trained actually to become a neuropsychologist and academia, it sounds like was second to that, but you found good work both in the academic world and neurosurgery and outside in the private practice. With this said, uh, how has having a clinical degree helped you and your career? 
oh, it's been in, in, invaluable. I think uh, without the clinical career, I wouldn't have had the freedom uh, to move back and forth. My clinical career has allowed me to, 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 to move in and out of different realms more easily. Uh, um, in the hospital, they'll, they'll see you as valuable because you can, you can see patients. Um, with a clinical psychology degree, you can do counseling. Um, with a neuropsychology uh, specialization, you can do testing. You can start a private practice like I did. Um, you can teach um, neuropsychological um, uh, methods. Um, so it, it really is uh, uh, of significant benefit to have a clinical degree and, and particularly in, in the career path I've chosen, not on the tenure track, um, it has given me stability that I otherwise, in, in my salary and in, in my uh, future prospects that I otherwise would not have had, I would have had to, you know, really secure a, a tenure position and been very concerned about that above all else. But I've never been concerned about securing tenure or pursuing tenure uh, in my career, I've always been able to, to find work with, with a clinical degree. And this next question is kind of um, directed at those who don't necessarily want to follow that academic path. So any other advice that you may have for those who are interested in psychology or any field within the psychological field, um, but they don't necessarily want to stay in the academic world? Any, any thoughts on that? I guess my best advice would be find something that you really like. Um, you have you, you, you have to do this work, you know, upwards of eight, 10, 12 hours a day. And if you don't like it, it's, it's, you're not going to succeed at it. Um, so if you can really find something you're passionate about, um, whether it's clinical work and seeing patients or uh, teaching statistics um, and, and really helping people get over that hurdle, um, it's really important to find something that you like. I mean, part of something that I found out about myself was that I really, I mean, the finance is part of this, but I really like working with numbers. I really like working with data. That's part of the neuropsychology. That's part of my research career. I was part of finance. I, I, I liked working with data. I like math. Um, and that has kind of that capacity or that talent, I guess, uh, in my in my brain has drew me first to finance, but that wasn't quite the right fit. It drew me to research was a very good fit. And I really enjoyed that. It tickled my brain. It made, made my brain sing. And uh, in neuropsychology, the same thing. If you can find something that makes your brain sing, then it won't feel as much like work. It'll feel more like play. And if it feels like play that you get paid for, uh, boy, you're going to enjoy your career. Very good advice. I like that. Uh, make your brain sing. I like that. Um, I'll, I'll add one other uh, bit of advice. Share my screen again. You have a number of YouTube videos, and I uh, saw a few of these, and, and a lot of them are really interesting. I love anything dealing with the brain, and I know I'm not al alone here, but uh, uh, you had one talk in Albuquerque about uh, 12 years ago. Uh, talking about creativity in the brain. And then you had some others that are only three years ago and, and some others that I think were even uh, uh, more recent than that as well. So for those of you who are interested in 
the kind of research that Dr. Young is doing, go ahead and go to YouTube and just search all, as you can see up here, all I did is search for Rex Young, uh, PhD, and uh, it pulled up uh, most of your videos. There are some <coughs> other ones out there as well. But um, tell us what a typical day looks like for you as the president and owner of, of this private practice. Tell us uh, what your typical day looks like. Well, usually, I mean, so I'm not seeing patients every day now, but I'm seeing patients several days a week. I come in, uh, interview uh, patients, uh, get them set up uh, for their testing, uh, then uh, they start testing with uh, either a student, uh, postdoc, uh, fellow, um, and then I start uh, writing reports of patients I've seen previously, have results meetings uh, with patients that I've seen previously. Uh, I'm working on various papers um, that are in various stages of being written, edited, revised, accepted, rejected. Um, so um, it's uh, more, and, and then um, there's a business side uh, to this uh, practice that takes a lot of uh, care and feeding. So um, at least a third to some days a half uh, of my time is spent in fretting over making sure that I'm gonna make payroll, uh, be able to pay all my employees and uh, getting uh, 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 an accountant that's going to be uh, effective uh, come tax season and making sure that all our insurances are paid and, and, and whatnot. Um, I'm also doing a lot of legal work, expert uh, work, uh, psychologists, uh, particularly clinical psychologists as they become expert in a particular area will be called on by lawyers to uh, give expert testimony in legal cases. And I am doing a fair amount of that. Um, I find that enjoyable to um, spar with lawyers and uh, um, give my opinions regarding the presence or absence of brain injury in particular uh, clients that they have. So uh, that is, um, a lucrative uh, aspect of work that we do that, that can help me pay, pay the bills, uh, but it's also interesting aspect. Uh, it's very intellectual, uh, uh, intellectually demanding um, side of it, uh, doing a lot of going through records and preparing for depositions and uh, court testimony. So um, it's not typical that I do that on a daily basis, but on a monthly basis, I'll have uh, a deposition or a court testimony uh, talking to lawyers on a perhaps weekly basis. What was your most interesting case that you had to depose or, or be an expert witness on? Put you on the spot here, uh, off the cuff. I don't know. Well, so I will speak in generalities because I, but there was a case where an individual was making an allegation of sexual abuse. And it turns out that this individual had a tumor in their brain, growing in their brain. Um, coincidental to the time where these allegations of sexual abuse emerged mm -hmm. and that the tumor and its location may have had something to do with the remembrance of those um, allegations of sexual abuse. 
was a fascinating case which brought up uh, questions of Freud and false memories and confabulation and and it was a, a fascinating case um, uh, from a lot of different perspectives but uh, uh, it 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 was uh, a very uh, interesting case what do you love most about your job I love working with patients um, it is psychology um, condensed down to its um, most uh, concentrated elements uh, because I have um, very little time to spend with patients I really have to concentrate on trying to um, instill change in them oftentimes in a very short amount of time if, if necessary um, I only have one results meeting and it may be just an hour and some patients really need to understand that their life might be profoundly changed by the diagnosis they are getting, if it's a dementia diagnosis, for example, Alzheimer's disease, or that they have to do something very different um, to prevent some uh, bad outcome from happening in the future. Um, so I think that is the most rewarding thing is to be able to really, um, help patients make rational decisions with the best available data, uh, in a compassionate uh, way, um, in very little time. It's very distilled psychology, um, but very important work that we do. And I feel, um, um, fortunate to be able to, to do this work. Um, it's very gratifying. Well, I'm glad to hear that. At the end of most of our uh, um, podcast interviews, we usually have a handful of fun questions. So I'm going to ask you a couple of them uh, now, probably three of them. Okay. Tell, us something, tell us something unique about yourself. Oh, unique. Hmm. Unique. I really like to travel. And you said um, that, I mean, I really love the outdoors. I'm just not built for it anymore as I get older and hiking and camping, and, but I still love the outdoors. You had said when we were chatting earlier that you have Icelandic and German uh, background. And I have been to Iceland perhaps half a dozen times. I find that to be the most profoundly beautiful outdoor scenery I have ever encountered in my life. We're going to go again uh, in December um, when it's only light four hours a day right. um, just to, just to um, soak up some more uh, of its beauty. Um, I really love uh, the outdoors. I love uh, experiencing nature and uh, Iceland is prototypically the most profoundly beautiful place on this planet. And that's something that people don't know about me, I guess, is that uh, I really, really like that. And that's what I like, why I like New Mexico, why I love New Mexico, and why I would uh, probably practice neuropsychology in Iceland if I could, if I could ever learn, learn Icelandic. <laughs> I, had, I had heard a story that uh, uh, Iceland and Greenland and the people that found each of those purposely labeled uh, Iceland as Iceland 
to dissuade people from coming to visit. I'm not sure if exactly. that's true. And in, yeah. in, in Greenland to attract them there. Right, right. And, <laughs> and Greenland actually has more ice than Iceland has. Yep. So that's what's interesting. <laughs> what is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? Hmm. These are tough questions. So um, the Flynn effect is kind of interesting. The in intelligence, the notion that uh, intelligence, there's been a secular increase in intelligence over at least the last century. And there's all sorts of theories about why intelligence tests keep to ha keep having to be made harder because people appear to be getting smarter um, from 1900 to 1950 to 1980 to 2000. They have to keep making intelligence tests harder because people keep getting smarter. That's the so-called Flynn effect. James Flynn uh, discovered this uh, originally and described this more, most fully in his papers. And why would this be? Why, you know, there's nutritional reasons that you know perhaps we're getting better nutrition over this century. There's environmental reasons that maybe it's you know schooling and visuospatial. I had a theory um, that I wanted to publish that it had mostly to do with literacy. That uh, massive increase in literacy across that century, where most people were illiterate at the beginning of uh, the century in 1900 you know, only what, 50% of the US could read and none of the world could, could read um, uh, in, uh, uh, in non-Western uh, countries um, uh, at any uh, rate. But uh, that, what that did to the brain to instill this complex visual thing that we do to convert scribbles on a page to words to meaning to stories that you could visualize in your head imagine the complexity in your brain uh, that that entails and how that could potentially increase your intelligence so i think the flynn effect is my favorite thing to mull over how intelligence could in, increase over the last century and and the environmental implications it's not genetic um, it's, it, it almost certainly has to be an environmental influence that, that caused that, uh, that increase, that secular increase. When you brought that up, I thought back of when I was going to graduate school, and I remember seeing some data that showed more and more people were going to college, first year generation, and I'm, I haven't looked at it for years and years, but maybe that is also correlated to what you're talking about. I remember that only a certain percentage of people actually received their doctorate. And now it's a larger percentage that are receiving their doctorate as yeah. well. So I, I can follow what you're talking about. Yeah. And I mean, you see other things like um, when you look at all, when you go into old houses and the doors are only five feet high. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, well, we know people are taller too. So we know there is a nutritional effect. Right, um, right. People are, are reaching their genetic potential through environmental influence of good, good diet. But it seems like there's other other things going on that are, are, are incredibly interesting. We don't we don't really have an answer to it. Do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of neuropsychology? Um, Hang out with neuropsychologists. I think that was the best thing that I did was uh, showed up at shock trauma, found the neuropsychology department and they were friendly folks. 
neuropsychologists generally are. We love free help and <laughs> volunteer uh, your services. Uh, we'll train you to do the tests and, and um, really uh, learn the nuts and bolts of what we do uh, and what we don't do, uh, because there's a lot uh, that we don't do that is, is more broadly based in clinical psychology, if you're interested in some of those aspects, um, before, you, before you take the leap. But if you do take the leap, um, you will be enormously uh, gratified and rewarded. It, it is a, a very interesting, challenging, and um, uh, rewarding uh, subfield in clinical psychology and psychology um, that I would recommend to anyone who's interested in brains, anyone who's interested in, in data and numbers, uh, anyone who is interested in um, humans in all of their uh, functioning and dysfunctioning and flourishing and suffering. I would also add one other thing. More and more of my guests are emphasizing the need and almost requirement for undergrads and early graduate students to have that uh, research experience and, and being able to volunteer at uh, such programs that you were describing at your location as well. Even though it's volunteer, volunteer you know, um, you, you are a volunteer there and you're not getting paid you can actually ask for more and say, hey, Rex, I'd love to learn more about what happens after I administer these tests. Can I help you do with the data analysis? Can I help you with interpreting that and, and, and that sort of stuff? So I, I would and highlight asking, that. And asking the question, what would I have to do to become a co-author on the paper that comes out of this? Very good, uh, yeah. And uh, to be, uh, I mean, that's what really leveraged my ability to get into graduate school and get internship is I had a lot of uh, uh, authored papers. Um, and that's, uh, that was unusual for me at the time and a lot opened some doors for me. <clears throat> but if, if students can get into labs, volunteer, get, get started uh, working with data, but then, you know, talk to their advisors and say, what, what would I need to do to um, help enough uh, intellectually to become a co-author on this paper uh, and have that discussion because becoming a co-author on the paper will really um, start to open some doors uh, for, for those looking to get into graduate school, to get into work, um, that building that resume is going to open up doors in business, um, in academia, in, uh, in industry, wherever you decide to go, uh, demonstrating that you have all those tools necessary to translate things from from the from the patient or the subject to uh, the paper is is profound. The other thing that I'd last say here is don't limit yourself to just going through your department or your program to find those fellowships or assistantships. You can go outside of academia and just approach the businesses, the practices, and, and ask, hey, are you looking for help? Because a lot of people just think and wait for their advisor to put something on their lap and say, hey, you could do this. Why don't you proactively find that if you really want to? So you could go inside and outside of academic fields. So 
Definitely. And even while I was in graduate school, one of the things, I mean, I wandered over to the imaging center. That was not in our department. I went over to the imaging center and volunteered over there and, and, and started working and, you know, started developing a project with them. And that really opened up that door. But that wasn't part of our graduate program in psychology. We were going to create instruments and administer tests to undergraduates. That's That was the program at that time. So... Look, Rex, look your, your department. Yes, definitely. I was going to say, Rex, is there anything else that you'd like to bring up or discuss on this podcast? No, I really appreciate the opportunity to share what passes for wisdom <laughs> with, your, <laughs> with your audience. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, you, you have a good humor and a, a good uh, aura about you. I really appreciate you being on the program and, and the show and sharing, even though um, you don't think it's much, but uh, our audience does really appreciate hearing everybody's journey and your journey was slightly different. So again, thank you for sharing your story and advice with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.